District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening and for considering the podcast today. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to District of Conservation. I'm your host, Gabriella Hoffman. This podcast offers a sober examination into all things hunting, fishing, shooting sports, energy, environment, and the public policy surrounding it. And this podcast also specializes in original interviews that you won't hear elsewhere. Here's what I have for you today. Monologues have been a little scarce here on the podcast due to my very busy travel schedule this fall and transitioning a little bit with my roles Uh, maintaining a full-time job now, and then doing freelancing on the side. So pardon the absence of these monologues, but today I want to talk about three things in a quick fashion as best as I can. We're going to talk about some of my suggestions for Giving Tuesday as it relates to conservation. I also want to talk about COP28, which is the upcoming UN Climate Summit happening in Dubai starting Thursday, if I'm not mistaken, and a paradox involving ExxonMobil getting into the lithium mining business in Arkansas with the project that they've unveiled there, and the other uses of lithium outside of electric vehicles that would be applicable here because lithium is not just for EV batteries, which are very controversial in terms of their environmental footprint and their costs. But those are kind of the three things I want to touch upon today. You've probably been inundated with Giving Tuesday notices, call to action, suggestions, But every year that I've done the podcast, I've tried to kind of narrow it down to trustworthy organizations, nonprofits in particular, because that's who you're giving to. You're not giving to private companies. You're giving largely to nonprofits. And the list will be repetitive, rather reminiscent of stuff you've heard from me in years prior. But I'm going to expand on why as it relates to conservation. Of course, first and foremost, the sponsor of this podcast, the Committee for Constructive Tomorrow, I definitely encourage you to support them. I've worked with them for five and a half years, give or take now, or actually I think five years, but going on nearly five and a half years. They've been great partners more recently with the podcast, but also with my Conservation Nation series. I've assumed different roles for them. I started off as more so of a communications associate. I've done a little bit of policy work with them too. And as you're listening to this, I'm actually going to the ALEC conference doing some policy stuff for them this week. So that is why you're hearing this episode now. But they deserve a lot of kudos. They're doing a lot to expose climate alarmism. I love working with them. I'll continue to work with them. We have more Conservation Nation episodes from Alaska that we're going to be debuting very soon. And then also some new ones we're going to film starting in spring 2024 about some more heated topics and interesting topics that we think are compelling. So tip your hat jar to see fact if you can, of course. The second suggestion I will make now that I'm at the helms of this 
Center for Independent Women's Forum would be if you're interested. I know many of you have started to follow my work there in the two and a half years that I've worked with IWF, now in my new capacity as director of our Center for Energy and Conservation. IWF does great work to advance the cause of women, policy prescriptions, and so much more. We have three verticals, Independent Women's Forum, Independent Women's Voice, and Independent Women's Network. But the forum is where you can channel support if you are interested in feeling inclined, especially to our Center for Energy and Conservation. Support can come in many ways. You could contribute to the organization, our center in particular, if you like. If you want to share our work and our research and policy briefs, that is also appreciated. Following us on social media, whatever the support you can lend to Giving Tuesday, uh, whether you can offer something monetarily or not. Definitely, I encourage you to check out our center. We have more projects coming on the horizon next year in 2024. It could look in the form of storytelling, action centers, more policy briefs, papers. I'll probably have more opportunities to testify before Congress, state legislatures, and go on media. So any support you can to support our efforts at the CEC would be greatly appreciated. Doesn't matter the kind of amount, um, but you will see a lot more from me in this format. We're going to be utilizing our visiting fellows. I'm working with my colleagues and other departments, but any support goes a long way and also consider our CEC if you haven't already. And if you like our work and want to see our work shine a bit more and support us in more meaningful ways such as this. And then there's kind of like a hodgepodge of groups that I would also like to mention related to conservation, of course. Safari Club International, which I've you know, enhanced my membership with. I think I bought two three-year memberships upgraded to that recently. So SCI does great work, of course. Sportsman's Alliance is also another great group. Howl for Wildlife, if you are looking to get action-oriented, all three keep and track what is happening federally, in the states, and localities. They all have unique purposes and intents and different you know, services that they offer, but all are activating sportsmen and women across the country in many different shapes and iterations. So those are three that I also want to recommend. Um, Congressional Sportsmen's Foundation is also really great to support. I'm going to their upcoming summit next week. Going to have a lot of feedback and a lot of thoughts and interviews from that conference when I go there to Delaware next week. That's kind of a teaser of what my upcoming plans are. You'll hear some interviews there. I mean, RMEF, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation is always good. The turkey groups, the duck associations, you know, Delta, Waterfowl, Ducks Unlimited. You can't really go wrong with supporting the plethora of different organizations out there. But these five that I mentioned in specificity are kind of top of mind for me that I hope and encourage you will support on Giving Tuesday, which is today, November 28th. So that is my kind of uh, call to action for you guys. Take it or leave it, you know, at least... Follow them on social media, share their materials if you can at minimum, if you aren't able to contribute. I know things are in dire straits financially, inflation, you know, living pay to paycheck to paycheck. People are in dire straits and I'm not expecting anyone to obviously fork over huge sums of money. But if you want to support in some way, I also think in Giving Tuesday, you give back by also following people, sharing their stuff on social media. It's really hard to get stuff across on social media these days with changing algorithms and people being drawn to sensationalism. So I think that's how you can give back to different organizations, just following and supporting the aforementioned group's work at minimum if you can't donate. Let's talk about COP28. It is simply known as the United Nations Climate Change Conference, or more formally, the UN Climate Change Conference or Conference of the Parties of the UNFCCC, 
or as it's known as COP. And it's going to be held in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates. I don't blame people for wanting to go. I saw a chart from, I believe it was a Bloomberg associate, someone who chronicles climate and energy policy extensively. And they had cataloged that 70,000 people, which is like double the amount of last year's COP in COP27. uh, 70,000 people are attending and a lot of people aren't really making outrage over the amount of carbon emissions, although usually a lot of attendees scream about, you know, reducing your footprint, doing this, but they're okay with traveling um, as long as they can say, well, you know, I'm offsetting it with carbon credits, but you people, regular people like us, we can't travel. So it's kind of funny there. But some of the headlines that are emerging, what we can look for in lieu of my not attending, of course. I have some colleagues from CFAC going. Uh, Craig Recker, president of CFAC, is attending. Mark Morano, publisher of Climate Depot, is also attending. So I will try to bring them on the podcast to give an overview of the events of the conference happening in Dubai. But hey, it's a cool location. Um, It's pretty friendly in the Middle East. And some interesting headlines that have emerged. The UAE is reportedly planned to use COP28 climate summit to lobby for oil and gas deals. And this has rubbed a lot of the usual proponents of the UN summit the wrong way. Um, The United Arab Emirates reportedly planned to use its role as a host of the biggest and most important annual climate conference as a platform to lobby foreign government officials for oil and gas deals. According to leaked documents by the Center for Climate Reporting, Um, this is what is likely to transpire. And a lot of people have really been upset over this kind of paradox that, you know, oil and gas heavy countries like the UAE would host something like this. But that is not really a gripe I have because a lot of reports now, a lot of these, you know, kind of climate centric, climate advocating entities, you know, the media, different conglomerates out there, but a lot of media outlets that are favorable with, net zero plans, net zero propositions are, you know, having to report much to their chagrin that more and more governments are actually going to be striking deals for coal, oil, and gas. And this was an AP report, but that notwithstanding, not controversial because you need fossil fuels, coal, oil, and gas to power renewables. Ironically enough, that's what a lot of climate proponents don't admit, but there are other facets. Some of the itinerary that is kind of concerning outside of this, like I said, fossil fuels are not the problem net zero plans are problematic. So I think a lot of people will call into question, what are the points of the summits going forward, especially from those on the preservationist side. But I saw from Daniel Turner of Power of the Future that one, I believe, breakout session from the conference, which is interesting to say the least. And let me pull this out there. So he says in a tweet, the first day of COP28 Dubai focuses on gender, hosted by Feminist Action for Climate Justice Action Coalition to break down the climate patriarchy with environmental outrage. Um, And he jokes that Saudi members need their husband or father's permission to attend. And let's read more about what this gender summit entails. And then there's a second one that concerns me even more broadly as I read. So let's see this. Uh, Climate Champions, which is cataloging what is happening at COP28. The events of COP28 aim to amplify women-led climate solutions, showcasing women and girls as pivotal climate leaders. The agenda calls for increased finance flows to women in regions most impacted by climate change. 
The goal is not only to empower women, but to recognize that gender-responsive climate initiatives are a smart, effective strategy for tackling climate issues. So what it says on November 28th, 29th, counting on a sustainable future global conference on gender and environment data sponsored by UN climate change, high level champions, UNFCCC, UN women, IUCN, and we do will convene a global conference on gender and environment data. Speakers, participants will include those from UN agencies, government officials, policymakers, leaders, commitment makers of the feminist action for climate justice action coalition and gender environment data Alliance, JEDA, private foundations, civil society organizations, indigenous leaders, and local communities and academia. There's another gender event scheduled for December 3rd, the gender action plan learning event. Another event on December 3rd, gender and climate security. There's one on December 4th called Gender Just Transition Partnership and Climate Finance Ministerial. Highlight the role of finance to advance gender equality through a just transition. Decarbonization, that's what they mean. Another thing, Women's Leaders Summit, Financing Gap to Outcomes, Oriented Finance, Gender Transition. So a lot about gender safety in climate action, walking the talk, gender equality in Paris Agreement, women-driven driving climate solutions, championing grassroots. So there's a lot of gender-related specific stuff. Another thing to put on your radar that also is concerning more so than fossil fuels, like I said, a lot of people are making a big do about nothing there. It's We have to use fossil fuels. They're still something we rely upon and readily consume, not only here in the United States, but globally. But they're now being produced in a cleaner fashion. It's obvious that's the case there. But let me pull up something I read in Bloomberg's climate derivative. So they say that they're going to meet related to kind of gender because you hear me talking about gender. We talk about ESG and what I could see happening at COP28 is an emphasis on ESG, advancing women in so-called climate solutions. Um, Is it really meaningful or is it just to cherry pick and rubber stamp that you do it in a more virtue signaling fashion? They talk a great deal about this. Does it actually help women? Does transitioning away from fossil fuels help women? I would argue no, um, because a lot of these alternatives obviously rely upon subsidies. There's no real market demand for them. Um, If it's done in the free market, okay, sure, there could be some meaningful action. But so far, a lot of these projects and alternatives are being propped up artificially by the hand of the federal government. So I don't really have any optimism about it being organic coming to fruition. But there are other ways that women can channel, obviously, advancements in energy and conservation. We talk about that here on the podcast. Now, this other derivative from Bloomberg Green, which is something you're going to be watching for because they can't obviously really tackle eliminating fossil fuels because they've admitted fossil fuels are going to be needed for the future and you can't necessarily phase away from it. But from Bloomberg Green, the world's most developed nations will be told, emphasis told, to curb their excessive appetite for meat as part of the first comprehensive plan to bring the global agri-food industry into line with the Paris Agreement. The Global Food Systems Roadmap to reductions of 1.5 degrees Celsius is expected to be published by the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization during the COP28 summit next month. Here in the United States, we've had a lot of people, preservationist environmentalists, elected Democrats who are really gung-ho about decarbonization, say that this is a manufactured 
calling out obviously attempts to phase out meat or reduce the intake of meat. They say it's a Republican-driven, Republican-invented culture war that is not going to happen. Now you're hearing straight from the horse's mouth that at this summit, they're going to be talking about reduction of meat intake, not an invention of Republicans. This is straight from the UN COP28 organizers. Another Bloomberg article that came out yesterday, or rather November 25th, Eat Less Meat is Message for Rich World and Food's First Net Zero Plan. And this is from Bloomberg Green. I'm going to read from the article because it was previously paywalled, but I think I have some access now. And they want food to be more of a focus. Like I said, they're going to focus not so much on fossil fuels, but more so on gender, food, etc. And... Nations that overconsume meat, according to Bloomberg, will be advised to limit their intake, while developing countries where underconsumption of meat adds to a prevalent nutrition challenge will need to improve their livestock farming, according to FAO, which is the aforementioned organization. So this sounds really similar to me as I'm breaking this down for you guys, uh, very similar to the biodiversity requirements of the UN. Rich countries will have to bail out poor countries that do not sufficiently meet biodiversity impact standards, don't adhere to 30 by 30. And that would total, if I'm not mistaken, it was $500 million, half a billion dollars a year that rich countries would have to pay for developing or not so developed countries, third world countries, uh, to inspire them to want to meet their biodiversity reports. And what we've seen with, or biodiversity goals rather, But what we've seen with the Paris Climate Accords, it's more so just a virtue signaling front. It's not a meaningful plan because whether or not the U.S. has been involved, it doesn't inspire countries to reduce their global footprint. What is China doing on this front? Not really pledging to do this. What are India and Russia and the Middle Eastern countries planning to do? Not phase away fossil fuels. So you see that and you see what they've done with the Paris example, what they've tried to do on biodiversity the demands that they've had and requested of wealthier nations that are actually on track to reduce their emissions, to be, you know, following high standards for conservation, what have you, even outside of these very faulty frameworks. But now we're seeing it trying to be modeled and exacted for food intake. Now, Bloomberg continues, from farm to fork, food systems account for about a third of global greenhouse gas emissions, and much of that footprint is linked to livestock farming, a major source of methane, deforestation, and biodiversity loss. Although non-binding, the FAO's plan is expected to inform policy and investment decisions and give a push to the food industry's climate transition that has lagged where other sectors lagged other sectors in commitments. Excuse me. The guidance on meat is intended to send a clear message to governments. But politicians in richer nations typically shy away from policies aimed at influencing consumer behavior, especially where it involves cutting consumption of everyday items. According to one of the persons featured here, livestock is politically sensitive, but we need to deal with sensitive issues to solve the problem, says uh, Mr. Dinesh, the founder of Eat, which works to accelerate climate action in food systems. If we don't tackle the livestock problem, we're not going to solve climate change. The problem is the key problem is overconsumption. Their article lists that the average American consumes about 123 kilograms of meat a year compared to 7 kilograms in Nigeria and just 3 kilograms in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The UN Bloomberg also reports is seeking to strike a balance between the climate transition and ensuring food security for the growing global population. So as well as calling for less meat consumption for the world's well-fed, the plan would also encourage farmers in developing countries to bolster productivity of their livestock and supply more sustainably. 
So this sounds like a redistributionist plan that we've seen in the climate accords, the Paris climate accords from 2015. The same redistributionist scheme in the Montreal Biodiversity Pact that was established last year. And now we have to forego our food standards and other countries will have full green light. Countries that obviously, and interestingly enough, don't have climate standards or energy standards or environmental standards whatsoever. So they will get a free reign to have livestock production. We have to reduce our standards. This is very unfair. And like the article said, enforcement of this, you will have people coming together right and left saying this is absurd, this is unreasonable, and this is not going to lead to better climate standards, better environmental standards, and stewardship. So we'll be tracking these two in particular, especially this new net zero food security compact that they're about to establish here. Very concerning, not a Republican Party culture war invention. Again, straight from the UN. The third topic I will conclude today's debrief is ExxonMobil getting into the lithium industry. What does this deal entail? I saw Governor Huckabee Sanders tout this, of course, and I think uh, Chairman Westerman of the House Natural Resources Committee also lauded this development. Reading from ExxonMobil's corporate website dated November 13th, ExxonMobil is drilling the first lithium well in Arkansas and aims to be a leading supplier for electric vehicles by 2030. They announced plans, we announced plans to become a leading producer of lithium, a key component of EV batteries. Work has begun for the company's first phase of North American lithium production in southwest Arkansas, an area known to hold significant lithium deposits. The product offer will be branded as Mobile Lithium, building on the rich history of deep technical partnership between mobile and the automotive industry. They have three or four quick bullet points about what the significance of this development is. They say it means advanced production approach has potential to unlock vast supplies of lithium in North America. Domestic sourcing will contribute to energy security, support manufacturing, and advance U.S. climate policy objectives with significantly fewer environmental impacts compared to other lithium-producing countries that don't have the same standards. They say that the first production will be targeted for 2027, and project further demonstrates ExxonMobil's leadership in energy transition. Dan Ammon, president of ExxonMobil Low Carbon Solutions, says and is quoted as saying, lithium is essential to the energy transition and ExxonMobil has a leading role to play in paving the way for electrification. This landmark project applies decades of ExxonMobil expertise to unlock vast supplies of North American lithium with far fewer environmental impacts than traditional mining operations. And what this area entails, where is this area in Arkansas, southwestern Arkansas? ExxonMobil acquired the rights to 120,000 gross acres of the Smackover Formation in southern Arkansas, which is considered one of the world's most prolific lithium sources of its type in North America, rather, in North America, not global. South Arkansas is our state's all-around energy capital, producing oil and natural gas, and now thanks to investments like ExxonMobil's and their contribution of skills and scale, lithium, said Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. My administration supports an all-of-the-above energy strategy that guarantees good, high-paying jobs for Arkansas and will continue to cut out taxes and slash red tape to make that happen. Their notice concludes with saying Southwest Arkansas has a history as an oil and gas producer and the region's geology is well understood. ExxonMobil is working with local and state officials to enable the successful scale-up of Arkansas's emerging lithium industry. 
So what does lithium production benefits or what does, what do lithium production benefits look like? They write and continue to say that after using conventional oil and gas drilling methods to access lithium rich salt water from reservoirs, 10,000 feet underground, ExxonMobil will utilize direct lithium extraction, DLE, technology to separate lithium from salt water. Lithium will then be converted on-site into battery-grade material. The remaining salt water will be re-injected into the underground reservoirs. The DLE process produces fewer carbon emissions than hard rock mining and it requires significantly less land. Um, the president of the Low Carbon Project says this is a win-win project. It's a perfect example of how ExxonMobil can enhance American energy security, expand supplies of critical industrial material, and enable the continued reduction of emissions associated with transportation, which is essential to meeting society's net zero goals. Lithium is essential for not only EVs, they say, but also the production of lithium iron batteries, of course, which are used in EVs, but also consumer electronics, energy storage systems, and other clean energy technologies. Demand for lithium is expected to quadruple by 2030, and virtually all lithium today is produced outside of North America. And like I said, uh, first lithium production, if not stopped in courts and regulations, is slated to be online by 2027. I want to read an article from my colleague, Sarah Montalbano, which will now be available at IWF.org under our Center for Energy and Conservation. And she assesses this development that while interesting and fascinating. There are some interesting paradoxes and things to consider. Like her, I also express some reservation with this net zero language. I think companies like ExxonMobil do this because they want to have a stamp of approval and say, look at us, you know, reducing our carbon footprint, doing this. We agree with the transition away from fossil fuels by 2050, whatever arbitrary deadline. But is that really practical for them to do? Is it a you know, conceding or feeding themselves to the crocodile, hoping that they will be eaten last. That's a lot to wrestle with. But as my colleague Sarah writes on our website, oil giant Exxon betting on a green future, she says that streamlining environmental review processes would support an all the above energy strategy that is responsive to the need of local communities. And Sarah also comes from Alaska. So she obviously is writing that this is a good development to produce this here in the United States, but there's a lot of controversies assigned with lithium production here. Um, But she writes, producing natural resources domestically, including critical minerals like lithium, lessens U.S. dependence on foreign countries with lax environmental standards and blatant disregard for human and labor abuses. Absolutely correct there. But she says, the Biden administration's haste to permit 25 gigawatts of new renewable energy projects by 2025 risks greenlighting renewable projects that could cause significant environmental damage while throttling every proposed oil, gas, and nuclear project, no matter how safely done. What she also notes with this insistence, especially by ExxonMobil, to produce lithium-ion batteries, she says that what's worse is that EVs may not lower greenhouse gas emissions much, if at all, given the emissions released in mining battery materials. Special favors in the permitting process or in the form of subsidies and tax credits distorts markets and leaves consumers to bear the brunt of expensive, unreliable energy. She writes... Cautioning our readers, ExxonMobil is betting that U.S. policy will continue to subsidize booming demand for battery minerals. Yet in October, it closed a $60 billion deal to acquire a pioneer, sorry, pioneer natural resources, fossil fuel operations in the Permian Basin. Perhaps ExxonMobil also envisions an all of the above strategy for energy security or is simply hedging its bets 
on both sides of the renewable energy debate. Exactly right. Why are they betting on this so much? I actually like that they're trying to bet on a lithium future, but if it's backed by subsidies and not so much natural demand or natural market demand, rather, what is it going to do? Is it going to imperil the company? Is it going to leave the company to abandon the project if those perks and subsidies and other carve outs are not given to them? Or if the so-called positive outlook on lithium maybe dies, much like enthusiasm for EVs has winnowed and, and disappeared or really never took off. So it's an interesting paradoxical situation I find myself in. I like that oil and gas companies are doing this. Some people say it may be greenwashing for them to do this, but I'm also troubled by the fact that they want to take advantage of certain subsidies and federal government facilitated investments in these so-called clean energy technologies and projects, which if you're a limited government person like me, the government should not be facilitating or leading investment of technologies, reportedly good clean energy technologies and projects that has to be inspired by the market. And what we've seen so far right now with the collapse of the offshore wind industry, EVs not taking off, government spurring investment leads to a total calamity. It distorts markets. It doesn't facilitate consumers enhancing their purchases or or upgrading, let's say, to EVs or to cleaner technologies. I don't see excitement so far with all the reports I'm reading. And even the manufacturers are admitting that we may have gone too aggressively into this before it's prime, or maybe it'll never be realized. So I see the same here with lithium. Like I said, I would love to see more domestic production of rare earth minerals here in the United States, given the fact that China and other countries, China especially, has a monopoly on this. But it also comes with a lot of concerns with lithium. I know we're going to do it safer. I want to be reassured that it would be uh, harnessed in a safer fashion. I suspect it will be, uh, given the fact that we have different environmental laws and standards here compared to the rest of the world where lithium mining is done. So if it can be done truly in a free market fashion, I would love to see this. But also, I don't think they can simply use they shouldn't simply rely on lithium for EV batteries. I think they should emphasize that lithium would go towards other sources that ExxonMobil said because it is needed for other types of uses as well. So I see it more so going to other uses besides EV batteries, but that's just me. But I want to know your thoughts on this. Do you think lithium is going to take off with this ExxonMobil project? Is this greenwashing? What do you think? Longer than our typical monologue, but we had to break down some of these essential headlines and topics that are going to be discussed in the coming weeks, especially with COP28 and this project as it advances to an ideal launch or rather an ideal production date of 2027. I will be having some episodes maybe from Alec, definitely from Congressional Sportsman Foundation next week, but I'll have an overview of Alec and what I did there on behalf of CFACT. But I appreciate you listening and thank you for supporting the show. Thanks for listening to District of Conservation. If you enjoyed what you heard today, go leave us some reviews on Apple and Spotify or wherever podcasts are played. Your feedback will help us reach more people and I love to know what is on your mind after each episode. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement because that is our way of updating all of you listeners. And we have just hit a thousand followers on Instagram for the podcast account. Thank you very much. And if you have any guest suggestions or topics you want to hear on the show, I'm all ears. I would love to hear your feedback there. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next episode.